At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We invite you to join us for our series, Habits, Ancient Practices for Today's World, where we'll learn to reject culture's endless stream of quick fixes for God's time-tested truth. Together, we'll rediscover age-old practices that draw us to Him, where true satisfaction awaits. Today I want to continue on in our series that we call Habits, Ancient Practices for Today's World. Now this is our way, our spin or take on what has classically been called spiritual disciplines. Now the word discipline doesn't seem too exciting, but let me just tell you what all of these habits or disciplines are intended to do, and that is to bring you into deeper relationship with God, all of it from scripture reading to communing with believers to worship, and today's topic that we're going to talk about prayer, it's all driven towards relationship. Isn't it amazing that the God who created heaven and earth desires a relationship with us? And think about the great lengths that he's gone through in order to have that relationship with us. Sin is a problem precisely because it impedes the relationship that God wants to have with his creation. And so in order to deal with our sin problem, Jesus comes, he pays our sin debt, he eradicates the, the, uh, the breach between us and God, enabling us to have a relationship with the lover of our souls, the savior of our lives, Jesus Christ. And how many praise God for that mercy and for that grace? Come on and give God praise. All of it is about relationship. As a matter of fact, the backbone and the heartbeat of the Christian faith is relationship. That's why all ministry activity has to be preceded first by intimacy. When ministry comes before intimacy, it is empty. But when it's an outflow of a vibrant relationship with God, then it is full of his power and his grace. So the heartbeat of our team here, our pastoral team, our leadership team, is that you might have a relationship with God, that you might know him. Not just know facts about him, but that you might know him. Don't get me wrong, the facts of the scriptures, the facts of the songs that we sing, all of those things are wonderful. But these habits, these practices, even the facts, apart from a vibrant faith in him, a real relationship with him ends up being lifeless. And we all know what it's like to know a lot about a person in our celebrity culture without really knowing the person themselves. I'll never forget a few years ago, my wife and I were traveling back home uh, and we were passing through Chicago Midway Airport. And when we uh, were going to our terminal, uh, to our gate rather, in the terminal, as we were walking through, there were a group of guys off in the distance having a passionate conversation. You could tell it was a passionate conversation. And as I walked by, they, for whatever reason, invited me into that conversation. And here's what they were talking about. Who's the best quarterback of all time, Tom Brady or Peyton Manning? How many know the answer to that question? 
right? So we, we, here we are for about a good three to five minutes. We're tossing facts and stats back at each other and who won more games and who threw more touchdowns. And ultimately, Tom Brady wins because of Super Bowls. And even those of you who don't like Tom Brady have to admit that he's the best quarterback football has ever produced. And so here we are having this passionate conversation. And after it wraps up, I walk over to my wife and she says, did you know those games? guys? And I said, absolutely not. But we just had a beautiful bonding moment. This is the way men bond. But what was interesting about it is that we could have told you everything about, the, about those guys, what colleges they went to, again, the, the teams they've played for, the cities they've lived in, what they eat for dinner. We had all the facts. But if you ask me, do I know Peyton Manning? The answer is no. If you ask me, do I know Tom Brady? The answer is no. It's possible to know information about a person without having intimacy. And that's why these habits are so important, my friends. It's because we don't want you to just know God from a distance, having information without intimacy. So today, we're going to talk about one of the greatest vehicles God has given to us for intimacy, and that is prayer. Can you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6? Matthew chapter 6. One of the greatest books written on this topic was written by a man named Richard Foster. It's called A Celebration of Discipline. And in it, he says that prayer is the central spiritual discipline because it brings us into continual communion with God. Prayer is a central spiritual discipline because it keeps bringing us back into communion with God again and again. Now, I told you to turn here, but if you know anything about the New Testament, in particular the Gospels, you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what they call synoptic Gospels, which simply means that their source information for writing their Gospels was the same. And so you see a lot of the same stories and scenes from Jesus' life covered. And it's almost like you're looking at the same scenes from different camera angles, and so you pick up different details as you look at each one for the same moment. So this moment we're about to read on prayer, Luke covers it as as well. So keep your finger here, but turn with me real quickly to Luke 11, Luke chapter 11, because what Luke chapter 11 verse number one gives us is what precipitated this moment. Why was Jesus about to teach on prayer? And here's the answer, verse number one of Luke chapter 11. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. That's it. They wanted to know how to pray. And why did they want to know how to pray? It was because of what they had seen already in the life of Jesus. Something amazing happened when he prayed. His uh, joy was filled when he prayed. Hope was evident when he prayed. And miracles happened when he prayed. His communion with God was tangible in his life. I, I hope that that's true for me. I hope that's true for you as well. Many of us have quiet times at home. Some of us have uh, children still at home or a spouse or other family members that see us. I pray that they would be able to see in us what Jesus' disciples saw in him, that when he is with God in prayer, something amazing 
happens. Can't quite put my finger on it. And so, Lord, teach us about this thing called prayer. And so Jesus brings them around. And in essence, what we're going to see in verses 5 through 15 of chapter 6 is that prayer, when done right, brings us into relationship with God. That's the secret of it all. That's the power of it all. That prayer, when done right, brings us into relationship. And you don't have to have title or position. Anyone who comes to God in faith is received by him. How many praise God for that? Now, here's the beautiful thing about this this passage, is that he's going to show us how to pray in a way that allows us to have communion with God. But maybe you notice by the way that I stated my big idea is that prayer can be done wrong. Prayer, when done right, brings us into relationship with God. But prayer, when it is done wrong, distances us from God. And so Jesus walks them through what not to do before he lands on what to do. And he says this in verses uh, 5 and 6. He is going to drive home, don't pray to impress people. That's the first what not to do. Don't pray to impress people. Notice what he says. And when you pray, verse 5, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And the implication there is he will reward you openly. I love that Jesus starts by telling them what not to do. And this is the way that we typically train people whenever we're about to turn over something to them that is powerful and and can be an awesome thing when used the right way, but can be very dangerous and destructive when used the wrong way. I'll never forget my first job. I worked for a pizza uh, shop, and uh, part of what we had on the menu were these deli sandwiches, and there was this, uh, this uh, cutting machine, this meat slicer, that for some reason for me was very intriguing, probably because I was a 15-year-old and I wasn't legally allowed to use it at the time, but as soon as I turned 16, I was permitted to go over to the meat slicer, and I had dreamed of cutting meat. Don't ask me why. It was just one of my dreams. You have yours, I got mine. So when the guy, I'll never forget when the manager was uh, teaching me how to use this meat slicer, he must have spent the first 10 minutes telling me what not to do before he told me what to do. And I think it was his way of trying to protect me. And what Jesus is doing is wanting to protect their prayer life. This is a powerful vehicle. This is an instrument that can change your life, the life of your family, your church, and yes, even the world when done rightly. My friends, when we pray like Jesus has instructed us to pray, lives are changed, not only ours, but those around us. But when we don't pray the right way, it can be terribly disastrous. So what's the first thing he tells them not to do is don't be a hypocrite. Everybody say hypocrite. Now that word hypocrite in uh, the context of this particular passage refers to stage actors, those who were playing a part. 
They were playing or pretending to be someone that they weren't. Jesus in that day was simply telling them, don't play the part. Don't be an actor. If you're really going to pray, do it from a genuine heart, not to be seen by people. He refers to where they wanted to pray. Some people had a desire to pray in the synagogue. It's almost like when the corporate gathering happened, they were in the background with their hands lifted saying, oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. Jesus says, don't have that attitude. It's not that the prohibition is against praying in a corporate gathering. The prohibition is against wanting to be seen for it or wanting the approval of men. What difference does it make if men approves of us if God doesn't? Then he says the street corners. Obviously, these are public places, the market square, where, again, everybody would see us. If the goal is to be seen, then you've missed the point. He literally says that if that's your goal, to be seen by men, you have received your reward. In other words, you got everything that's coming to you. You're not getting anything more from God than just that, that men saw you. At the end of the day, if prayer is just about people seeing us, then that has zero power. And so what does Jesus tell them to do? He tells them to go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Pray when nobody's looking. Pray faithfully. Now, this does invoke a question, doesn't it? And what is the question that it invokes in our hearts? It it invokes the question, who am I praying for secretly? Who did you privately pray for this morning? They would never know that you prayed for them, but you went before the Father on their behalf. Hopefully, your children. Hopefully, you are the CIO of your family, the chief intercessory officer, and they will never know how much you pray for them, but hopefully, you're on your knees. Hopefully, you're praying for your pastors who lead you. Hopefully, you're praying not just for us, but for those neighbors and coworkers that don't know Jesus yet. Who are you praying for secretly? What missionaries are you praying for secretly? See, I I don't believe we can read this uh, correctly and walk away without having a secret prayer list, being a secret agent for Jesus, praying for his kingdom to be advanced through missionaries and through ministries and through our children and through our spouse. I encourage you, make your secret prayer list and pray for them faithfully. Because at the end of the day, what Jesus wants more than anything else is not our popularity, not for people to pat us on the back, but for our faithfulness, for us to simply commune with him on behalf of others. I'll never forget a conference that I went to. It was about a decade ago. It was being put on by the White House. At the time, George W. Bush was the president, and he had started this Office of Faith-Based Affairs. And for those of us who were really passionate about community development, we were invited to this. And the keynote speaker was the director of that Office of Faith-Based Affairs. His name was Jim Toohey. Now, Jim Toohey had the distinction of being legal counsel for a number of high-profile communities community or development organizations from around the world. Probably his most popular client had been Mother Teresa. 
And he told a story of when a news reporter came to Calcutta, India, and uh, tried to do one of those gotcha interviews, trying to embarrass her. And so this reporter comes and says uh, to Mother Teresa, you have to feel like a failure, don't you? I mean, after all, when you came to Calcutta, it was full of sickness and poverty and brokenness. And now look all around you. You've been here for a long time, and it's the same amount of sickness and poverty and brokenness. Surely there's no way you can feel successful. Mother Teresa responds without blinking an eye. She says to the reporter, God has not called me to be successful. He has called me to be faithful. I believe that is the heart of God for each and every one of us. Don't worry about whether or not people call you successful or applaud you or pat you on the back. That is not the goal of prayer. The goal of our prayer life is to be faithful in private. And if we are faithful in private, our God who sees in private will reward us openly. Amen? Amen. And then he goes on to give them a second what not to do. Now, the first what not to do, it almost seems commonsensical. It seems logical. Of course, you should not pray to impress people. But the second one is far harder for us to understand. He's going to tell them not to pray to impress God. Verse number seven and eight, it says this. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. It is interesting that Jesus tells them, don't be like the hypocrites, play acting, and don't be like the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles was this massive group of people who didn't really know God. They didn't have the covenantal knowledge of God. It was not given to them the words of the Torah. And so they didn't know his heartbeat. They didn't know his character. And so for them, surely God would be impressed with our phraseology. Surely God would be impressed if I used a bunch of very sophisticated words, if I pulled together theological cliches. Surely God would be impressed with that. Aren't you glad that God doesn't need our theological cliches? How many praise God that he doesn't need our deep conversation and fancy words in order to be moved? The very point of this particular warning is don't pray trying to impress God because guess what? You and I can't impress God. It's not like you're gonna say something, he's gonna step back and say, wow, I have never heard that before. It's not like you're going to pray something so eloquent that he says, now that guy, he's smart. We're never going to impress a God who is omniscient, all-knowing, that, that, that our words would be so uh, impressive to him that he is forced to move. This is uh, Jesus' way of saying you cannot manipulate or control God with your words. And so what do I bring to him? I bring to him the one thing I have to offer, and that is humility and in awe of his holiness. If we really want to move the heart of God, to make an impression on the heart of God, it is with humility and with an awe for his holiness. Now, let's look at how we should pray. Having warned us on how we should not pray, he then tells us how to pray. Verse number nine, it says, pray, pray then like this. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. How many have memorized this prayer in your life? How many have memorized it? How many have heard it? How many have recited it before? Many of us are familiar with this. So what new can I offer to you that you uh, have uh, not already seen? Well, I'll simply say this. Understand that the heart of a prayer that God receives is a prayer that has a passion for his kingdom first. Notice the, the starting point of the prayer. The entire thrust of the prayer is not self-centered. Even the parts that are personal are driven by the first part of the prayer, which is totally kingdom-focused. Notice what he says. Our Father in heaven. Now, by referring to him as Father, it is both a statement of uh, intimacy, a term of endearment, as well as a challenge for us to evaluate the status of our relationship with God. Is he just creator or is he Father? Can we truly say our Father, Abba in the Aramaic, this term of endearment, Abba, Abba who is in heaven, Hallowed be your name. This hallowing of God's name, this, this elevating or exaltation of God's name refers not just to private holiness. This hallowing of his name is not just a private act of holiness, but it is saying to God, God, exalt yourself, exalt the holiness of your name in me, in the world, throughout all of creation. May your name be hallowed, God. May you be exalted. And then he goes on to say, your kingdom come. Not mine, not Caesar's. Not any earthly kingdom. The primary thrust of a, a, a prayer that God receives and is pleased with is a prayer that is totally in awe of his holiness and a prayer that says, Lord, we want your kingdom to come and to be advanced. Now, what is the kingdom of God? This would take hours for us to unpack. But let me just say in a very concise statement that the kingdom of God is where the king of heaven reigns. Where the king of heaven reigns, wherever Jesus and his lordship is exercised, that is where the kingdom is established. And how many want his lordship to be ruling and reigning in your life? How many desire for his kingdom, his lordship to rule and reign in your family, in your church, in your community, in the earth? Lord, may your kingdom come. Now, what does his kingdom look like? Well, he tells us there are two laws of the kingdom that hold everything together. That is that we love God with all of our being and we love our neighbors as ourselves. We know that the kingdom has been established when love permeates all of our actions and our words. When there is no evidence of a deep, strong, not easily broken love between us and God and us and one another, then we know that the kingdom has not been established here. 
But when there is that type of love, a love that forgives and shows mercy and is not easily offended, a love that goes above and beyond, that is sacrificial, a love that lays down our lives one for another, all for the cause of Christ, then we know the kingdom has been established. When a husband has that type of love for his wife and a wife has that type of love for her husband, then we know the kingdom has come in their marriage. When parents are committed to their children, not just when they are getting A's and on the honor roll, but when they are in seasons of backslidden state, there's still a commitment to pray and earnestly love them. Then we know the kingdom has come. When a church is covenanted in such a way that their love supersedes the external cultural reasons for division, that in here there is a deep sense of unity, then we know the kingdom has come. And so what is the prayer that pleases the heart of God? It's a prayer for his kingdom to come, for his love to govern our hearts and our relationships. But then he does pray for himself. But notice that the prayer that is personal is so we can be used by God in the advancement of his kingdom. Give us this day our daily bread. Why is that important? Because all of us need a measure of strength in order to be used by him. The prayer for daily bread is not a prayer for God to simply give me prosperity or me abundance, for God to simply increase my 401k or 403b or give me more possessions, but it's, Lord, give me a measure of strength so that I might serve you. Give me bread, Lord, so that I can be strong enough to serve you. And then forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now, throughout the New Testament, debts are used synonymously with sin. Forgive us our sins, as we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. It's a recognition, I am fallen, Lord, and my sin is an impediment to my relationship with you. I can't be used fully by God when I have known unrepentant sin in my life. And so, Lord, please deal with my sin. Lord, give me the grace to be able to recognize that not only am I a sinner, but I'm in a world full of sinners, and so I'm going to have to show the same forgiveness to others as you have shown to me, but all so that I can be used by you in advancing your kingdom. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want to be a part of that, so give me strength, forgive my sins, and Lord, please, Don't let us go into temptation. And if we do get into evil, please deliver us from evil. I don't want to drift off. How many have ever prayed this, Lord, help me not to drift to the right or to the left. Help me to stay on the path. Anybody ever prayed that before? This is what he's praying. He's simply praying, Lord, I don't want to fall into the temptation that is all around me. Every, everywhere you go, you're being solicited. You cut on a TV, you're being solicited to go this way or that way. Billboards, solicitations, come this way or that way. Now your cell phone, it is a solicitation for marketeers to get access to you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You and I are facing temptation. How in the world can we walk through a world that's so full of landmines without his help? Lord, I can't do it. Not man enough. Don't have the moral stamina enough. Not smart enough. You know, this week I got a, <clears throat> a text uh, for what looked like my bank saying that, hey, there's been something going on with your card. You need to call this number right away to clear it up. 
Now, I, I consider myself normally a guy who doesn't fall for that type of stuff pretty easily, uh, but I was busy and I was on the move, and, and so I was getting ready to dial the number, but praise God, I'm married well. And my wife said, do not call that number back. Wait till the morning, call the bank. It's probably a scam. And I called the bank, and it was a scam. And I would have fallen for it if it wasn't for a wife who was born with a suspicion bone. <laughs> and I praise God for it. All of us are susceptible for falling for all of these temptations. So Lord, if I'm going to be used by you, I need you to keep me. And Lord, help me when I do fall. John says in 1 John 2, I write this to you so that you sin not, but if you sin, you have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous. I love how holiness and grace are balanced together in one verse. Don't sin, don't sin. It will destroy your life. Don't sin. But if you sin, know that you have a God who is gracious and willing to forgive you. How many praise God for that? And then he goes on. I'm out of time, so let me close. He goes on to wrap up by revisiting forgiveness. Because it is so essential to kingdom advancement. It is as if he is saying that arguably... The most important ingredient for you to remember, if you don't remember anything else, remember this, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will, you for, will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, for far too much of my Christian life, I saw this passage as a message of reciprocity that somehow the extent of my forgiveness was hinged upon my ability to forgive. But that has never been the gospel. That's not the gospel of grace. This is not a passage about reciprocity. It's about uh, receptivity. How much have you received? What he is trying to communicate is the extent to which you forgive others reveals how much you have received forgiveness. To the extent that you will give grace to others, it reveals how much grace you have received. And so if you struggle to show forgiveness to brothers and sisters in Christ, then maybe it reveals that you have received so little of God's forgiveness or understand so little about his grace. And I think that this passage is best applied not to those people that I have the deepest affinity for, but to those that I feel the furthest from. It was our Savior on that cross who prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If he could show that type of forgiveness, then I believe as a recipient of his grace that I can do it as well. But it takes more than what Chris Brooks has, more than what you have. It takes receiving a grace that is beyond this world. Maybe you've never received that grace. Today, I encourage you to do so. Let's stand together as we prepare to close in worship. And the praise scene comes, if you've never received Jesus as your Savior, if you know that you need this grace, after I am done praying and we're done worshiping, come so that we might pray with you and you can receive a relationship with Jesus. If you're watching online, just type connect and we will follow up with you. Father. 
Thank you for your love, unmerited, undeserved. We pray today that you would be pleased and that we would have a relationship with you that is not easily broken, intimate, and that your kingdom would be advanced through our lives until all have heard, until Christ's return, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.